Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. Some people are like, no, but still selling out. You can't, you can't curse in a corporate audience, and so I don't wanna do it at selling out. Like the only real true success as a comedian is to, to sell out the big comedy you know, club stages or to, to sell out the arenas, et cetera. It can help you. The good news is that it can help you still on the stand-up side. You, you can do some speaking for a little while and then blow up completely on the comedian side. So Sarah Cooper and I was, were speaking a lot on the same stages. She had a she has a great wow. presentation on um, how to create compelling, engaging content that she would do. And um, she was crushing it. And then she blew up on TikTok. Hot breath. What's goody, Hot Breathiverse? Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers. And last week, we interviewed... 30-plus-year corporate comedian Greg Schwimm on the show, talking about how you can break into the corporate comedy world. And our discussion today is going to take that even further with a gentleman whose TED Talk has over 12 million views. It's called The Skill of Humor, and he is joining us today. This is a live Q&A. We did a little bit a while ago that we are excited to now bring on to the podcast. We do Q&As and live streams on our YouTube channel all the time, so go subscribe there. But in the meantime, in between time, there is only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath with Andrew Tarvin. And our guest today uses humor in a way that not only entertains people, but also educates people and also connects people. So we're going to be learning a lot about how you can use the skill of humor in ways you may not have considered before beyond just grinding it out at the comedy clubs. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hot Breathiverse, the one, the viral, wait, I probably shouldn't have said that in a pandemic, um... It's Drew Tarvin, everyone. Give it up for Drew. Uh, that's right. I am quarantined right now because of virality. Uh, <laughs> I love I love the sound that you came in with. You're like, oh, as if it you were walking by and it just so happened that a podcast was starting. You're like, oh, is this a podcast I'm going to jump into? Oh, oh the internet. Uh, well, hello, internet, while we're at it. Nice. Yeah, let's chat with each other. No, it's an honor to, uh, to be here. And by being here, I mean... Uh, being at home. Uh, this is the beauty, beauty of, of being virtual and being an introvert. It's an honor to be here <laughs> by not being in the same room with you. It's wonderful. Are you an introvert? I am. No, I am very much. If you know your personality assessments, I am a type A blue square conscientious INTJ with a sign of Aquarius. <laughs> All of them. I'm uh, an Aquarius so as well. That's the only one I got there. Yeah, I, yeah. The translation for people is that I am a stubborn, ambitious introvert who likes long walks on the beach uh, by mm. myself. That's the translation. I love yeah. it. Well, please. Oh, we already have people tuning in saying hello. Michelle said this podcast is sick. I guess that's another viral <laughs> joke there. Mm -hmm. But um, could you give uh, give us just a little context for kind of how you got started in your comedy game, and then kind of mm -hmm. how you got to where you are now? Certainly. Well, I, I have uh, what many consider to be, I think, the greatest degree for comedy, uh, computer science and engineering uh, from The Ohio State University. So as mentioned, I, I am very much an introvert. I'm very much a nerd. 
Uh, throughout life, I've always been obsessed with efficiency and obsessed with computers. So I went to the Ohio State University, got a degree in computer science and engineering. And uh, while at Ohio State, my best friend wanted to start an improv comedy group. He needed people and essentially forced me to join. And so, you know, I was not a comedian that was like, oh, I'm super funny. I was, I, I would watch comedians growing up, but I wasn't the person that was like, I'm going to do that someday. I would like, I loved watching Whose Line Is It Anyway, but never once did I think I could, I could totally do what Wayne Brady does, which I still can't do what Wayne Brady does, but I never even had the, the thought of even trying, but my friend wanted to, to do it. Uh, you know, it's university. So you try a bunch of stuff and uh, fell in love with it. Uh, fell in love with improv. And then from that, that led to some stand up. And after I graduated, I started working at Procter and Gamble uh, as an IT project manager, also the career that most comedians Translation have. for people <laughs> is that I am a stand. Uh, uh, but what IT I found was that the things that I had learned in improv and stand up were really helping me in my career. They like it was so much easier. I didn't get nervous to give a presentation at work because it's like, oh, I did stand up last night in a basement with 10 people and I had to make them laugh. Whereas this audience, I don't have to make laugh. I just have to share where, what status we have on this particular project. So it made presenting a lot easier. It, I started to incorporate things just to make my own work a little bit more fun. And it kind of led me to this intersection of humor in the workplace. So bringing that skill set in and realizing, oh, there's tremendous benefits to using humor at work. And so I, I, I proclaimed myself the corporate humorist of PNG. Uh, I just started blogging about it internally. I got business cards made. I kind of assumed someone would stop me. You know, I assumed someone from HR would be like, you know, you just can't create your own job title. Um, but uh, no one at PNG ever did. Instead, people just started referring to me as the corporate humorist. And as I did more and more of that work, I kind of fell in love with this intersection of not just making people laugh, but also helping them do something better. Like it was bringing the engineering into it. And so then I started my own company called Humor That Works uh, way back in 2009. Uh, I left PNG in 2012. And so for the last nine plus years, I've been teaching individuals and organizations how to use this skill of humor to achieve better results, typically in the workplace, but kind of in life as, as a whole. And so that's the, the somewhat, that's a medium version. There's a much shorter version where I could have said, you know, engineer, now I do comedy. And then there's a much longer version, of course, which is a lot of boring details, including that I was born on a Saturday in February. And that, that is something interesting is like, you know, I've been doing comedy 12 years. I've done some minor, like a little bit of speaking. I've done some like, um, like team building as a facilitator within team building. I've used improv in corporations before as well. But like, so I see the value, um, primarily monetarily in the corporate yep. world. Um, there's just, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of money to be made in the corporate world, mm -hmm. but I haven't been able to kind of maybe break through that glass ceiling. I mean, how do you correlate like profit with comedy? Cause it's like, if they're mm -hmm. going to spend five grand on a train, let's just say hypothetically yep. five grand, like how is that going to translate into actually moving the needle financially beyond we're all going to feel better for a week and then people are going to kind of simmer back to where they were. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really important question and you've just hit kind of the challenge of, uh, you know, selling humor in the workplace. This is something that I wish I had known uh, in 2009 when I was starting the business, just in terms of like, 
no one actually cares about humor in the workplace. And, and you see this from a data perspective. If you look at the global monthly searches for the phrase humor in the workplace, there's maybe a thousand. It's probably more now, but when I was doing initial research a little while ago, it was like a thousand. Mm. And that's not a whole lot. Only a thousand people glow out of 7 billion people searching for it each month. It's not a lot. However, there's a lot of people searching for how to improve communication skills or how to build a more dynamic team or how to relieve stress in the workplace or how to increase employee engagement. And what's interesting is that all of these things that I just mentioned that people are searching for, humor can be part of the solution as to how to get them. And so there's a balance between the topic of humor of training it, that's actually a lot harder to do. And if I were to kind of build my business completely from scratch again, if I already go back in time, I don't know that I would call it humor that works. I don't know if I would call it as a focus on humor um, because adding humor to the title does two things from a corporate perspective. First of all, it changes it from kind of a feeling of this must have environment or must have training to a kind of a nice tab. People are interested in it. They're like, oh, if I had a little bit more fun at work, that would be nice. But what I really need is stress management training. What I really need is leadership development. And so it changes in terms of some people's ideas of how important it is. And then the second thing that it does is having humor in your title anywhere raises the bar for how funny it is. Because corporate Corporate kind of workshops, corporate trainings and stuff like that, they're typically very, very dry. You do not need to be as funny as you are in a stand-up comedy club in a corporate training to be a quote-unquote kind of humorous presenter. However, if your topic is humor, then people will come into it immediately and they're like, all right, I expect this to be funny. In fact, I, I did this early on at PNG. I learned that if I did a communications workshop where I brought in principles of improvisation and humor then people would love the workshop. People would be like, this is one of the funniest trainings I've ever attended. This was amazing. I really enjoyed it. If I did that exact same workshop, but called it a humor and communication workshop or communication through humor, if I had that somewhere in the title, then most people would still enjoy it, but I'd get one or two people that would think, I thought it would be funnier. Like people think it's humor is in the title. Now they think it's going to be a stand-up comedy mm -hmm. show. So there's disadvantages to humor being the thing. But to answer your question, of how do you how do you like how does it translate to the bottom line is that's the you know that's the skill set of the the facilitator or the speaker etc is you have to connect it for people because again they're not searching they don't care about humor in the workplace you have to kind of go hey what are the what's the challenge that you're faced with so recently we were talking with um, a, a group about they're dealing with a lot of stress right because they're getting ready to go into busy season it's a virtual environment etc. So this is what their challenge is. Okay, now I can talk about here's how humor helps to relieve stress. Here's a study that shows that when you laugh, you actually increase blood flow through your body. You relax muscle tension, et cetera. Here's what we call our 4R strategy for managing stress through humor. And so it's all about solving the problem first and humor being kind of how we do that. And mm -hmm. I know some speakers who have been more successful by removing any kind of thing about humor in their subject matter and then just showing up and being really funny because then it's a surprise. If you're coming in and talking about emotional intelligence and you just happen to do it in a way that's really, really funny, people are like, not only was this valuable, but oh man, this person was really entertaining. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I thought maybe the humor angle would make you make it a differentiator from other people, but maybe it, maybe not so much. 
It can, and it, it can be a differentiator in the sense of like, you may not necessarily want in the title, you may not want it to be like humor for emotional intelligence, but you might have, you know, emotional intelligence or whatever in a fun, fast paced or whatever in the description. And then your testimonials might be this person was hilarious or so engaging, so entertaining. It's just, again, that word humor changes people's perceptions. The other thing is that some so many organizations have had a bad experience with a stand up comedian that I've heard multiple times that they're like, listen, my boss told me that we cannot hire a stand up comedian. <laughs> yeah. We, we have kind of barred them from them yep. coming to our training events. However, we saw your TEDx talk. We think that we like your brand or your style of humor. You don't cuss or anything like that. And so we're like, we're maybe able to make an exception. And I think this is an important thing for comedians to recognize whether you get into, and we can talk about the difference between corporate entertainment and corporate speaking. But if you get anything, anything corporate, whether entertainment or speaking or training or facilitation, you have to recognize that your primary goal is not to be as funny as you are in a stand-up comedy club, mm. right? Partially in a stand-up comedy club, you can say, oh, but I'm trying to be really funny or I'm actually going to toe the line a little bit or I'm going to push the bounds and all that. Like, That's not the goal in a corporate event. Your job in a corporate event is to make sure that everyone feels comfortable, that everyone is having fun, that they have a little bit of a break from the day. And you're not playing to just the individual audience because as a corporate comedian or someone coming into a corporate audience, you could make 99 out of 100 people laugh. But if that one person is offended by something that you've said, you might have a significant problem, particularly if that one person is the CEO or is someone in HR or is just someone that is very vocal, right? So the, the, the value that you are providing is different. And that's also why the fee or the amount of money that you make is a little bit different as well. That's mm. why it's different than if, hey, I'm going to give you 50 bucks to come and do this show in New Jersey with us versus like, Oh no, I'm going to give you, you know, if you're starting out in, in college, it might be, you know, uh, $2,500 or $3,000. If you're starting to do some corporate stuff, it might be $5,000 up to $10,000, $15,000, right? Once you get into that speaking mode, then the, the value proposition is very different. And you kind of have to put on hold that idea of like, no, I'm always going to toe the line and no one's ever going to tell me what I can and cannot say. <laughs> Hey, great. Just don't do corporate. If that's how you feel. That's great. Just don't do corporate because your, your goal or your, um, your purpose is a little bit different. So what kind of advice would you have for a comedian who's looking to maybe break into the corporate side more like entertainment or speaking? Yeah. So I think one understanding the difference between the two corporate entertainment sits within kind of the idea of, yeah, your, your soul primary purpose is to go in and entertain a group for um, a period of time. And so this is where they'll sometimes do like a, a company will have an offsite and they just want someone to come in that's going to make them laugh. Someone that's going to like, it's going to be after dinner, they're going to have some drinks served and they just want a comedian to come in and kind of make them laugh, help them um, relax a little bit, take, take their mind off of work a little bit. Um, that's kind of on the entertaining side. And that that's closest to stand up. That's closest to, or I know there's also corporate improv groups. Um, so I was a member of uh, comedy sports in New York City for a long time and the greater kind of comedy sports, which a huge fan of what they do in their style, but they also do a ton of corporate improv events, right? It's, it's entertainment, come and have a little bit of fun. Uh, corporate speaking is a little bit different where corporate speaking is meant to be that you have a message that you have some type of idea that it's kind of like the, you know, the difference between doing a, a 20 minute stand up set and doing a TEDx talk. 
is, and that you are, you're, you're there to help them learn something a little bit more that in addition to laughing, that maybe they're going to take some notes, maybe there's a takeaway. And this is where, you know, one tip in terms of if you're a comedian interested in speaking is you have to have an angle, you have to have a message, mm. you have to have something that you're going to leave the audience with. So not only have they laughed, they have also learned. And so, you know, we have a couple of different topics that we speak on. My very first one was kind of uh, an introduction to humor in the workplace. So the, the takeaway was, here's what I've learned as an engineer with credibility at Procter & Gamble about how humor can help you to be a more effective communicator, help you to manage stress in the workplace, and help you to be a better leader, right? So that's one angle. I know comedians, there's a, a great comedian, a guy named John Garrett, who was doing the circuit for a long time, was on the road constantly doing... Um, a bunch of those things has been on Bob and Tom and was, you know, headlining different events and things like that. He's now doing corporate speaking. His message is called what's your and where mm. it's about how are you bringing your full self to work? Cause he would bring himself as a comedian. And that's what people would. He's like, I would meet people 10 years later and they didn't remember that I was an accountant at one of the big four firms. They remember that I was a standup comedian. So if you want to stand out in the workplace, bring your passion with you. And so it could be rock climbing, it could be um, public speaking, it could be knitting, whatever it is. And so that's his message around bring, being your authentic self, right? So it's what is that additional thing that you're going to bring and how is that of value? Because to your point, you have to be able to connect it back. The person hiring you has to be able to say, okay, not only is this person going to make us laugh, but they're going to give us some type of nugget, some type of wisdom that is going to help us either increase workplace productivity. That's what justifies it to the bottom line. Or it's going to help us to improve our relationship among our team. That's going to help justify it to the bottom line. Or it's going to help us to relieve stress so that people can be more productive. Like, so it's got to go back to that connecting point of this, this matters to me as the, as the business owner because it's not only going to be funny, but also increase or improve our business. Especially with like this great resignation happening and so many people leaving their jobs seems like a, a good time to be introducing this to companies. It is. And especially if you can then, this is where kind of the translation is. And this is a skill set that comedians tend to, to get good at is translating between different audiences. And even if everyone is speaking English, not everyone is speaking the same level of English. And so you can translate that idea to say, you know, and there's studies around this. So this will, you know, sometimes a conversation that I'll have with a potential client is be like, okay, what are the biggest challenges you're faced with? Well, morale is a little bit low and we're struggling right in the great resignation. We're struggling with retention a little bit. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. And, and as you probably know, so this is me talking now. It's like, as you probably know, uh, around 34% of people leave their job because of their manager. They might like the work that they do. They might like even the company, but they leave because of their manager. And every single person that leaves tends to cost that company anywhere between 20% to 120% of that person's salary to replace them. We've also found that managers who are rated with a above average sense of humor, they have people who direct reports who are reporting to them are less likely or like have shown in studies are less likely to leave within the next year. So if we are able to help your management team improve kind of dynamics and morale through using things like their sense of humor, then we can reduce retention, which looks like, hey, if you've got 100 people, 33% are leaving at this rate, now we can start to give them a number. Now, at least in their head, they're starting to do the math of like, oh, well, People leaving, voluntary turnover is costing our organization maybe $100,000 a year. 
your keynote fee or your workshop fee of 5K, 10K, 15K, 20K, whatever it is, is now starting to look like a pretty good deal. But only because you connect it to a problem that they already know that they have and you've helped them understood the scope or the scale of that problem. Mm, yeah, the, the data-driven, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, really helps to solidify the need for it. That's where, yeah, for me, that's where it's helpful. Like, oh, yeah, this engineering degree is coming back in handy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, organization and comedian doesn't mm -hmm. seem to go hand in hand a lot of the time. Yeah, well, it, but it's interesting. And and I know our, our conversation is a little bit on the corporate speaking side, but um, I it took me a while. I was a comedian. I can't remember who. Um uh, told me this, but I was doing like just getting into kind of some of that MC level work. And someone had to remind me that as comedians, you are an entrepreneur. Like you are a business owner. It's just that the product is yourself. The brand is you. And so you have to think like a business owner. It's not enough just to show up in a stand-up comedy club every single day. That's a big part of it. Um, uh, I had a conversation with Ian Laura not too long ago, who I think is in the New York, New York City scene, a uh, hilarious person. He is like, he does believe kind of the Chris Rock mentality of like, you know, if people see you putting in the work, then they're more likely to kind of reach out and want to support you. So it's a, I think it's a Chris Rock analogy. Someone else probably also said it as well. But like, if you're stranded on the side of the road and it's raining and you blow a tire, like you blow a flat tire. Um, if you just put your hazards on and wait for someone to help you, very unlikely that someone's going to stop. However, if you get out, you start raising the car yourself, or you start trying to push it to the next exit or whatever it is, if people see you putting in the work to try to make that next thing, people are much more likely to stop and then help you out. Cause they're like, oh, wow, this person is working really hard. And if I give, if I come out on a limb to help them, I know that they're going to do something kind of with that help. So I do think that Absolutely. Putting in the work of being a comedian is important, but understanding that you are a business is also important. And there's a number of ways that you can monetize the skill set of being a comedian. That includes corporate entertainment, includes corporate speaking. Like you said, it could be being an MC or a facilitator doing, you know, facilitating team building events, et cetera, or it could be copywriting. It could be coaching. It could be a number of different things. And so, um, it, it's key to start to say, okay, which one of these types of things am I going to explore? Or maybe I'm going to explore a couple of them. That's what I did. I explored a couple of things for a period of time. And then it was just the speaking that stood out to me the most as a thing that I liked the best. Yeah, that's where I'm at almost 12 years in a comedy is I, I've been focusing on getting good at comedy, performing, living on stage, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then I was pre-pandemic. I was 2020 was going to be my biggest year ever on the road. Like I had yep. most of the year booked out and then I'm still recovering from that. And because now there's less jobs with more demand because everyone's trying to get back into the grind of it, especially on like the, the working comic side of things. So mm -hmm. I've been having to kind of like take inventory on, okay, well, what all skills do I have and how can I start to monetize them beyond me just standing on a stand-up stage? Right. And I think, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different things. So I'll say what I, when I was still exploring this stuff, I was, I lived in, I, I graduated from Ohio state, moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, global headquarters of PNG, and then moved with PNG to New York city. And once I got to New York city, part of the move, part of my desire to move there was like, I'm going to take stand up class. I'm going to take improv classes. Uh, I'm going to, like you said, get really good. Cause that is a really big key, right? I think one of my favorite stand-up comedy books is Born Standing Up. 
Um, Steve mm-hmm. Martin, which I think is fantastic. Right. And he talks about being so good that they can't ignore you. And I think some people read that and be like, oh yeah, I got to be pretty good. Of course, I got to have this skill set. And it's like, no, you have to be so good that they can't ignore you. You have to be so good that when people go home that night, they tell their spouse about you. Or they have, you have to be so good that people look at look you up after you get done off of stage and like follow you on Instagram. You have to be so good that when people think like you, you do material so that a week later, they're thinking about that. Oh my God, that thing that remember what Joel said back at the comedy club. That was so like, Oh, bright. Like that's how good you have to be. And so it does require a lot of stage time to get there, but that's not enough, right? Like the, the days of, you know, people sitting in the audience and being, you know, and, and uh, Lauren Michaels kind of sitting in each of these stand up comedy club audiences and being like, Joel, you're the next person that's going to come on SNL and let me make your career. Every now and then it happens, but we also live in an environment where you can kind of create your own luck. You can kind of create your own idea. So for me, it was experimenting with a bunch of stuff. Certainly, I started first within the entertainment space. I was like, okay, I'm a, I'm may, do I want to be a stand-up comedian? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. And then I did a couple of road shows and I realized like, oh, wait, I don't, I'm an introvert. I'm not good at like socializing. <laughs> I don't even drink all that much. I'm not like really a partier. I'm like a very straight edge person. Uh-huh. Uh, like my biggest vice is sugar. Ooh. And it's like, that's, that's not a cool vice to like, that's not like we're going to like a bunch of comedians are hanging out on the weekend. And we're like, Oh, Hey, everyone who, who here wants to go down to the, uh, the candy topia. Yeah. Anyone want to go to a, a dollar bin store? We were get to a bunch of gummy worms, huh? Who's in that? Like, no. And so I realized like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to do the road work. And I interviewed a couple of comedians to say, what do you like about it? What do you don't like about it? And just realized like, okay, maybe that's for me. So then I tried sketch writing and uh, just with some friends and, and um, started writing for a, um, uh, a TV show that was on Dish Network. That was like channel, it wasn't like, I think the 5,000s. It was like one of those things where it's like, it, it was it was called Daisy States of America. Really great group of people, but they were trying to do, they're basically creating the daily show, but for Indian people, mm-hmm. um, uh, for people from India that were living in that area. Because a, a friend of mine was like being the host for it. So I did some writing for that and then realized like, oh wait, I don't like giving up creative control. Cause like I would write something that I thought was funny or interesting and then hand it to someone else to produce and to edit and all that. And I'd be like, that's not the vision that I had. It was way funnier in my head. And <laughs> right. so it, it can't be that it wasn't actually that funny. I'm just going to blame it on them and their execution. <laughs> so then I tried film editing. So then I tried, you know, improv, then I tried facilitation, et cetera. So I encourage you to try a bunch of different things and, and look for a couple of, of signals that come back. Uh, one is what do you enjoy doing? What do you actually also get you excited? And then two, what is kind of resonating with people? What, what seems to get a little bit of traction? And then three, what can be monetized? That's an important question. Like if you're going to build, if you're going to make a living out of this, you do have to think about what is that monetization angle? What will people, what are people willing to pay for? Yeah. And uh, M- Michelle said, you sound like the perfect friend for me because I, I talk about sugar a lot as well. And my, uh, my sugar addiction as well. So that's very funny that you said that. <laughs> yeah i think yeah. it's amazing yeah it is it's there yeah it's the new tobacco they're saying it is exactly i'm like I, and, and so, the, the worse sugar gets the cooler i get for having been so into it for so long right i, I think right i mean it's, it's terrible for our health and i'm gonna die sooner but at least i finally get a little bit of street kid about that white gold that's the real white gold that Ooh. 
Bruno Mars or whoever that singer was talking about. Not cocaine. <laughs> so you you've been on bar. the sugar. You've been on the sugar. You've been woke to sugar for a while now. I have been. Yeah, exactly. That well because. So I am, uh, I'm a skinny person. Uh, I am, I am very frail. Um, I would actually say I was born 8.3 pounds and stayed that way till I was 15 years old. Uh, <laughs> at least it felt like, and, and I will say I, I have shared this, right. And this is, so this is part of this skill set of humor, right. Is the value of writing bits and things like that. Then if you do a podcast, you do an interview, you, or you're talking in a corporate space, you can suddenly go into material, not knowing that you're going to go into that material. But now it like sounds conversational, sounds very good. So because we happen to be talking about sugar, just going to happen to drop. Yeah, I was 8.3 pounds. But also say like, I will tell you that growing up skinny is tough. Most people think like, oh, you must be so you're so lucky to not put on weight. But I will tell you, growing up skinny is tough because I don't know any fat people who have ever, ever been thrown. Hmm. Like hmm. I have been used as ammo before. <laughs> like people have picked me up and thrown me at someone else. And I was like, why? And they're like, you're the lightest thing around. Right. But despite that, like I do, I'm lucky. I do have a good metabolism, um, which I think is kind of like a superpower, which I've realized like having a good metabolism and not eating poorly mm. is a waste of a superpower. That, that mm. would be like if <laughs> Superman was just a mediocre reporter for BuzzFeed, right? If Clark Kent wasn't Superman, he's like, he has these superpowers, but he's doing nothing, right? The reason why I say this though, is that, um, yeah, at, at one point, despite like being, look, appearance being healthy, I was pre-diabetic. My sugar levels were pre-diabetic. And wow. that's where I started to be like, I think I need to cut this down. I need to look at things. I need to stop having a pop tart every single morning for oh, breakfast. Like Pop-Tart. maybe something a little bit healthier. Um, we'll see. But so, so this material, this skill set, like I said, you can then apply it in a couple of different ways. And uh, just to rattle off a couple, and then I'm happy if there's any that you want to like. Tell me a little bit more about that, or what's going on here. We can talk uh, also about the 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 structure to then turn it into a monetizable business. Um, but a couple of things that I know uh, friends of mine that have done. So, uh, friends have, have done like copywriting, um, for websites. So they get hired by a brand and then add humor to kind of copywriting. Uh, people have done speech writing. So helping like certain people of like, okay, how do I add or punch up a speech, um, add some ideas to it. Uh, some people go into cartooning that's still within the entertainment space, but you can do kind of corporate focused cartoons or uh, you can do graphic facilitation if that is a skill set. Certainly MC work where it is like you help to facilitate a meeting and you bring some entertainment to it, but then you also do the thing basically like an MC at a stand up show, but for more corporate events. Um, certainly sketch writing and um, editing. I think it also applies to if you have a like if you have a, another background. If you can find the intersection between, say, you have a college degree in a specific thing, or you have experience working in customer service, even bringing a little bit of humor to customer service can be of great value. And then the the direction that I chose was in this speaking space was to say, okay, how can I take my humor that I'm already sharing, add a little bit of messaging to it, and be a speaker? And that is maybe one of the more interesting ones, but... Um, a, a good friend of mine who's been a stand-up comedian in LA for years is pivoting more and more to, uh, to speaking. And I was like, listen, you, you, he has a great, he has a great hour of material. Um, it's mostly corporate clean. Some of the stuff that he's going to have to cut. And we like, that's a, a whole different subject, but it's like, if you take your, your 60 minute that you can do of stand-up comedy, cut it down to 35 or 40 of the cleanest stuff, cohesive stuff. 
add back in about 25 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes of message of here's a lesson that I took away from that really funny story that I have, Hmm. or here's an angle that I'm going to bring in. You would have a fantastic hour long keynote that once people hire, they would like be very happy with because you made the audience laugh for 35 plus minutes and you've given them just a couple of takeaways. It doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't have to be a cool, full on like university lecture, but it's just enough that they're like, that's a new idea. I'm going to write that down and try to remember that in the future. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, that makes it feel more attainable of like it's not you don't have to like reinvent the wheel, but just kind of have an angle and see what material you can kind of cushion around your angle, like you said. Exactly. And that's that's from a content perspective. So it is it just like stand up comedy. It is not field of dreams. It is not a if you build it, they will come like you don't just have to magically be like, well, I've put together what I think would be my hour long keynote. When do I start making money? The bigger part of it goes back to being the entrepreneur. It goes back to having um, having some marketing, having some angles and finding some ways to to get there. And so, you know, when I first get it started, the the primary business driver within the speaking community is speaking. So if you want more speaking gigs, you've got to speak more, which is kind of this catch 22 type thing. But the number one driver is is word of mouth and referral. And so what I did when I first started out was I did some stuff internally at PNG and I would volunteer basically for everything at the company. I would be like, Hey, we're doing a company offsite. Can I lead a, you know, 15 minutes of icebreakers and teach them a little bit of applied improv or, Hey, we have this, you know, award show coming up. Can I be the MC for it? Or, um, you know, there's this training kind of going on. Can I talk about, you know, how improv can help you to, to do communication skills or whatever. It's like constantly volunteering for, for stuff internally is one way to start. And then the other thing that I did was just try to speak locally as much as possible. And so I went to meetup.com and I basically looked at pretty much every single meetup group in New York City that had more than, that had monthly events and had at least 20 people attend on average those monthly events. And then I just messaged pretty much each one of the event organizers and was like, hey, can I come to your group and speak about humor and then whatever their subject matter was. It was mm-hmm. like, can I come and talk about humor and agile networking or humor and agile project manager or humor and dating or humor, whatever it was. I was like, humor plus the thing that you talk about. And then once they said yes, I was like, okay, how do I modify a message to get that? But that got me doing a number of free events. A bunch of people ignored me. A bunch of people responded no, but a bunch of people took me up on it. And it was for free. Like I was just saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm building out my network in New York City, would love to come and do this. And what that allowed me to do was one, get some reps of this new keynote, two, get some people on the quote unquote client list, because no one knows in the future that, oh, that particular group that you worked with never actually paid you. You can be like, no, I, I spoke for this kind of organization and it doesn't matter if, if they didn't pay you or not. And three, start to get some pictures of me in front of audiences. Mm. And then I did a number of those. And at one of those events, they're like, hey, this was really great. We've got a networking group that meets in Westchester once a month, wondering if you'd become willing to come up there. It's like, we don't pay anything, but we can pay for your train and we can give you some food. It's like, great, I'll do that. So then I went and did that one and there, someone there was like, hey, this was fantastic. We love your project management background. Have you ever spoken for the Project Management Institute, PMI? There's a Westchester chapter. Unfortunately, we only pay our speakers $500, but maybe it's something you would consider. And in my head, I'm like, 
500, like I could, people will pay me to do this. $500. That sounds amazing. That's way, that's more than I've been doing stand-up comedy at this point for like five years. That's more than collectively right. the amount of money that I've made right. in any type of stand-up endeavor. But so I was like, yeah, I, I think I could probably make that work. But I did that event. Someone there really enjoyed it. They're like, hey, this was fantastic. Uh, there's a PMI in Long Island. You know, maybe, maybe you would you want, want an introduction there? Great. So I started to do those. And then just over time, it was building up that client list. And it got to the point, I was trying to get to the point of being so good that they can't ignore you that at least I got good enough that people would recommend me. And that's a pretty good place to be in. So that's what I, if people are like, okay, hey, this corporate speaking thing sounds interesting. Step one is start to figure out your angle. Like what is your message going to be that's going to uh, leverage people? Step two, I would say, think about the industry that you can then have credibility because there are, I think there's some ridiculous statistic where there's something like, I think 4,000 meetings in the United States every single day. And so sometimes people were like, I need to make a message that is, you know, that appeals to both HR and project managers and pretty much any group. And that actually makes your job harder. If you can find a niche or a niche, however you want to say mm -hmm. it, but if you can find a target group, go after that group. It's going to make kind of the people that you reach out to a little bit easier. It's going to help you to tailor a message. And you can say, you know, I'm going to talk about humor and customer service. So I'm going to talk about customer service. I'm going to bring humor to it, but maybe I'm not even going to call it humor, whatever your angle wants to be. But by doing that, picking that industry and then starting to try to get free kind of speaking events in that industry, that's how you can kind of slowly start to grow this business. It's not going to happen overnight, but that's what I've seen with other speakers, what tends to work. The other way that you could do it is you could get a TEDx talk, crush it, get very lucky when it comes to the video coming out, the TEDx talk go viral, and then that's going to lead to speaking engagements as well. A handful of people I know have done that. Uh, I have a TEDx talk now that has a little over 11 million views on it. That is not how I started speaking, though. That came after years of speaking, mm. not my introduction into it. Oh, and how did so how did the TED talk come to be? Because you've done a few now. Yeah, so I've done two, um, and both of them were a little bit of luck and a little bit of kind of reaching out. Um, so TEDx, uh, the nice thing about TED, so if you go to TED.com, you can look at all upcoming TEDx events, and they list basically every single TEDx event that's happening in the world. And if you're not familiar with the difference between TED and TEDx, uh, X just means independently run. So TED, a TED talk is like the big global event that happens in Long Beach or in Vancouver. It's the one that like Al Gore and Brene Brown um, and uh, Jane McGonigal, et cetera, like these really big names. They're the ones that are speaking at those events. They're the ones where you have to apply even to attend and it's like $3,000 to attend. That's the big global one. I have not done that. TEDx is an independently run event, which is basically a group or organization kind of raising their hand being like, we like this format. We like this theme. We like this brand. We're going to run our own TEDx events. There's certain criteria that they have to follow. But the advantage of a group doing that is after they have those talks done, they upload all of their videos, all those talks to the TEDx YouTube channel. And then sometimes those also still get very successful that they still you know, lead to, to a lot of eyes kind of on it. And so TEDx is much easier to do because those are just run by you know, I've, I did TEDx Ohio State University, so it was run by Ohio State students. And then the second one was Texas A&M, so, so Texas A&M students. But there's also cities. There's probably a TEDx Atlanta or maybe probably even a TEDx suburb of Atlanta mm -hmm. of a specific place or probably same thing in your region. So you go to TED website. You can look at all the upcoming TEDx events. 
And they usually book their speakers between four, three to four to five months out. So you could look at a bunch of TEDx events coming out in three, four, five months, and then just say, okay, maybe I'm going to apply to a couple of those, uh, of some of those. But like, maybe I'm going to see what the theme is and say, this is what I speak about and see. I know some people that have been very successful in terms of getting a TEDx talk that way. It does help if you have a connection in some way to the place putting on the TEDx talk. Um, for me, the way that it happened, the Ohio State one happened because I went to Ohio State. I was back on campus for uh, our alumni show. So the improv group that we started at Ohio State is still going on. It's still going strong, which is like one of these cool, like we never thought it was going to last us leaving two years after starting it. But the fact that it's now in its you know 16th year or whatever is really cool. But we were back. I was back for an alumni show. Happened to be the same weekend as TEDx Ohio State. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I didn't know that this existed. So I went over and talked to the organizers and was like, hey, this is cool. I didn't know that we even had a TEDx thing here at Ohio State. I you know, am one of the founders of the Eighth Floor Improv Comedy Group. Really interested. I'm, it shared a little bit of my message. Like, that sounds really interesting. Make sure here's kind of our contact information. Send us an email next you know, June or whatever when we're starting to put together speakers. And we'd love to, to see if we can uh, bring you in. Um, and so that led to that one, mm. Texas A&M, my brother is a professor at Texas A&M. So I guess teach his classes, kind of that idea of like, Hey, I still speak for free quite a bit. And, and I use it as an excuse to go and see my brother. So I go down there, I would guest teach one of his, his classes and some, one of his students really liked the guest lecture that I gave. And so when they were asking when TEDx Tamu, uh, Texas A&M was asking for speakers, someone submitted my name as, Hey, this was a guest speaker that I saw that I thought was great. I think they would be a great fit for this. So they reached out and that's where the the second one came from. So it sounds like just like in standup, how you, you're going to have to do it a lot for free. It seems mm -hmm. like the same thing is <laughs> there. There's no, uh, there's no easy ride here. It's like, you kind of have to like get in on the ground floor, do stuff for free and then like build from there. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly plenty of people who have been lucky one way or the other that, um, maybe they haven't had to do that step, but the vast majority of people, I would say of speakers or people that I've talked to have started kind of in that same vein. And it, in some ways it makes sense because if, if, um, for some of the, the people on this line right now, if a company was to come to you and be like, listen, um, we've got $10,000 to give you. We have, um, all of our senior people coming in from all over the country to this event. It's out of this year, this is the one time that they get together for eight hours total. We want to give you an entire hour long slot. I don't know how many comedians would be like, yep, they, I've got the perfect <laughs> message that they're going to love and that when they, that it's going to be worth $10,000 and that after I get off of stage, not only are you going to say, wow, that was definitely worth $10,000, but I should have paid more. Like there's very few people that are probably going to have that just right off the bat. Now, there might be some people like, nope, totally. I'm going to nail it. I've never done a corporate speaking event in my life, but my standup is so good that it's going to be worth that amount. And, but for most of us, it's like, no, we need to practice that. We need to, just like we need to get on stage to test out material to see if a joke is going to land. We need to test out to see if a message is going to land as well. If people mm -hmm. are going to resonate with it. So you got to start to, to build that up. And I think one thing to kind of keep in mind, it is interesting, especially as a comedian, depending on your background, I was... I still get imposter syndrome a little bit. And I was at an event in, um, in Brussels a few months ago. This was before kind of wave four started to hit. And the person speaking before me 
was just like someone who was incredibly accomplished. Um, this person, like the, the band that was playing after me had like won multiple Grammys or whatever the equivalent is in Europe and all that kind of stuff. Person before me, incredible, like had been doing this for years, was like 60 years old, had been award winner, that kind of stuff, was known, multiple things. And then here I am in the middle and it's like, I'm just, I'm just a kid from Ohio. Um, like how did I even get here? So you have a little bit of this imposter syndrome. And so you need to like, you need to be, have real confidence in your message to say, no, this was worth them flying me over. This was worth them taking 30 minutes out of their kind of agenda for this message to be heard. Mm-hmm. And that is partially what people booking speakers are worried about. Oftentimes the biggest opportunity cost for an event is not whatever your fee is. Because if you come in and you charge 3K or 5K or 10K or even 15K and you stink it up, the 15K for a lot of corporations in terms of bigger budgets, not not the end of the world. It's not going to make or break their year, right? Because that's otherwise they wouldn't be hiring a speaker at that amount. What they don't get is they don't get that time back. And the person that brought you in doesn't get their reputation back Mm. because the person bringing you in is kind of like, nope, I believe you should all listen to this message. And if you stink the bed on it and they're like, people are not only like, well, that's an hour I never get back. Also, we're never letting so-and-so pick speakers again because that was terrible, right? There's a lot of fear when it comes to that. And so there's things that we as, as comedians or speakers need to do setting up to that to help them feel more comfortable and confident in hiring us. Part of that is having a good client list. So this is where speaking for free can help because then you start to build like, I was very diligent, very intentional or early on that I kept track of every organization that I spoke to so that I could say, I've worked with more than 20 organizations, more than 30 organizations, more than 50 organizations. And I always said organizations instead of companies because I considered like, oh, I did an event for PNG internally that was for the IT group. And then I did a different one for the sales team over here. So that's two organizations, technically, I think, if you think about it, right? And then I did this free event for the meetup group. So that's a third organization. And then like, so so that was credibility of how many groups that I've worked with, the client list, and then having like, you know, I've worked with X, Y, or Z. That helps me now, especially as a humorist, to be able to say I've done work for organizations like the United, United Nations, the Red Cross, the FBI, because people are like, wait. What did the FBI want to you? If they brought in someone, it probably wasn't trivial. So maybe there's some like credibility to this type of thing. Maybe it is okay if we kind of bring this person in. So client list video is one of the most important things that you would need as a speaker or as a trainer, because the number one driver of new speaking business is seeing someone seeing you speak mm-hmm. and the absence of them not seeing you do it live. They want to see it like kind of on video. It's the same thing of having a tight five set that you're going to submit to comedy festivals, right? Because they're not just going to go off of your word. Like I've done stand up in clubs and colleges all across the country. It was one club and one college, but you know, it's, we're going to say it's clubs and colleges. Exactly. Like they're not going to believe that they're like, Nope, send me your tight five. And I'm going to make an assessment based on actual video that's unedited or whatever. Same thing. You need, you want video of you speaking so that people are like, what do you talk about? Why? One of the biggest things about the, the TEDx talk that was helpful for me, regardless of if it ever got you know, a lot of views or not, it was a great video that I could send to people when I was reaching out to them to say, hey, I would love to come and talk to your group about blank. Here's a TEDx. Here's, you know, here's an 18-minute version of my talk. And now they could see it in action to say, oh, this is actually, hey, it is about humor, but there's a lot of research in it. There's a lot of studies, and it's directly connected to the workplace as opposed to just strictly about comedy. Yeah. Michelle asked, 
if uh, she has two questions, did you join Toastmasters or learn speaking on your own? And did you go to the FBI on your own or in cuffs? It's <laughs> a great question. Uh, I did. I went to the FBI on my own. I was worried uh, when I got the email. It was right after my not too long after my second TEDx talk had come out. And it just like it says, you know, um, uh, I can't even remember the subject line was, but the from person was the FBI was like special agent so and so, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> what did I, did I use? Did I use a copyrighted image in my TEDx talk? Is this like gonna put me away or like? It's Big Sugar knocking at your door. That's exactly, it's big, they, they learned that I was talking about Big Sugar. They learned that I I illegally downloaded uh, NSYNC's 2000 album or 2002 or whatever it was No Strings Attached because I thought it was a really good album, but I was embarrassed and didn't want to go into the store, so I downloaded it off of Napster or something like that. They finally found out they're coming after me. Uh, but no, it was very fortunate that, I mean, it was one of those things. They're like, I was watching uh, TEDx talks. I was kind of bored by some of them came to yours. It made me laugh out loud. I sent it to a couple of other agents in the office. They also enjoyed it. We, we have a conference coming up in, um, July and wondering if you might be, you know, interested in coming and speaking. What's this about how humor can help us with, um, our own individual work. And that was again, cause it wasn't as, I don't think so. I don't think if you saw a stand up set of mine. Like of me performing at the stand or going at a funny bone somewhere that he would been like, this is hilarious. We should bring you in. It was no, it was a speaking engagement where I had very clear kind of takeaways and messages that people that resonated with people. So I was very fortunate. I will say uh, that is one of the most nerve wracking presentations I've ever given because it's the first time I presented where 90% of the room was armed. <laughs> right? Like most of our audience do not have weapons on them. <laughs> Um, although I will say I was doing an event a couple of months after that in Wichita, Kansas. And I made that joke of like 90% of the room was armed. They're like, no, no, 90% of this room is also armed. And that Wichita, Kansas group was scarier than the FBI because they were, I believe it. <laughs> they're a bunch of senior leaders and things like that. I was like, I don't know if you're licensed to carry those things. Uh, the first question I don't even remember anymore. It was just well, like, was did you do Toastmasters or teach oh, yourself to speak? Um, I did not do Toastmasters. I think there's incredible value to Toastmasters. But for me, stand-up comedy, I think, was my version of Toastmasters. Because the benefit of Toastmasters is that it gives you a safe space to practice, to try, and to fail. And it gives you people that are smart about public speaking, and then they give you notes on it. To me, it just never worked in my schedule because I was starting my speaking career while I was still working at PNG. And a lot of Toastmaster groups were meeting kind of midday or in the afternoon, et cetera. And so it didn't quite work schedule wise. So instead, I would go and do stand up. But when I went and did stand up, I was very intentional. Once I started getting into speaking, even when I do stand up now, I'm pretty intentional that I'm always working on something that's going to be related back to speaking. So like if even when I'm doing a, a Friday 10 p.m. show, the material that I'm talking about is all material that I would feel comfortable doing in front of a corporate audience. Like mm -hmm. I'm doing math jokes. I'm talking about communication stuff. I am um, uh, all of my material is what I call rated mom. Like I always want my mom to like be proud of what I like that. That was my son up there. And I get a lot of grandmothers who love my material who come up afterwards, like you were like, you were my favorite. You were very funny and so clean. So clean. Um, yeah. <laughs> you were so clean. I was like, well, at least keep the funny part. As long as like the main <laughs> driver isn't clean. <laughs> I remember 
I remember early on in my career, uh, one of the pieces of feedback that I would get often is like, wow, you're really confident up there, <laughs> which I didn't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing. Is it like, is it overblown? Should I not be that? Am I not funny enough to warrant that confidence? Is that what you're saying? It, am I overconfident for how funny I am? Um, there's, a, there's an interesting thing. So this is a learning from uh, standup is I'm a big believer that uh, no feedback is feedback. Right. Like in stand up, we have to learn that of like, we don't know that something is funny because when we say it, people don't like boo us. We only know that something is funny because people laugh. So the absence of um, booing doesn't mean something is funny, just as the absence of laughter doesn't mean some someone hates us. But no feedback is feedback. So if if from a speaking perspective, that idea of being so good that you can ignore you, if you do a speaking engagement, and no one comes up to you afterwards and kind of like, oh, that was great. I love this message. That's a little bit of feedback. If you do a speaking engagement or if you do 10 speaking engagements and none of them lead to someone reaching out and saying, hey, this was great. I think you should speak to so-and-so. That is feedback. And so I think it's important to also look for the, the lack of feedback as potential feedback as to how you're doing. Same thing from a stand-up comedy thing perspective. If, if you are doing tons and tons of open mics, and no one is asking you to come on a show to be like, hey, we do this indie show that we run every you know, Wednesday. We, we think you should come on through. That is feedback in some way. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not funny. It might just mean that you don't seem approachable or that um, that group of people isn't a strong community or you're not kind of like, this has been a challenge for me as an introvert is that I get kind of like nervous talking to other people. So I think sometimes it used to come off as that I was like a little bit of a loner which is more of like, I just don't like know how to introduce myself. I don't know how to like get myself into a conversation. And then what's weird is as I started to get some success, like kind of by accident or whatever, I just got fortunate, like after the TEDx talk comes out or other things, if people see me in a different dynamic, my social awkwardness has sometimes come across as people thinking that I'm too good for them. Mm. And it's like, no, I'm just an awkward person. This is why I didn't come up and come talk to you because like, I didn't, I didn't want to like interrupt in a weird way, but it's like, so that you have to understand the dynamics. It's not just being funny on stage. It's the conversations. It's the, the relationships that you're building outside. And that's true, both in speaking and in standup, the group that I did join or did follow that was particularly helpful. So I think Toastmasters can be, if you've got zero baseline for public speaking, there's plenty of free resources out there, but Toastmasters can be a good one to get practice. The other organization that is good once you get started a little bit is the National Speakers Association. Uh -huh. And this is an association for people who either want to speak or do speak for a living professionally. And it's great because it's basically your coworkers, right? Just like stand-up can be a lonely endeavor. And this is the beauty of hot breath is you're creating a community where you can be like, man, this tough thing happened. How do you deal with this? Or is this actually funny? Or this thing happened in a comedy club? How do I react or whatever? That same, the same benefit that you get from being in this community is a similar thing to National Speakers Association where you can like find people who have done it before and be like, how do I do this? Like, I didn't know how to have a, uh, a conversation with a potential client. I didn't know how to do what they call kind of a discovery call. Like, how do you actually lead a conversation so that they want to book you after having the conversation with you? Or what do you send in a proposal? You do the call with someone and they're like, hey, can you send over some details? Like, what do you just send an email? Do you send like a PDF? What do you send? And, and so having people that have done that and learning from them can be very helpful because then, it, then you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like I'm an engineer, I'm lazy. So if you've, if you've successfully figured something out, I just want to learn what that thing is from you and then reapply it and do it so that I don't have to like come up with it completely on my own. 
Well, yeah, that's... Oh, yeah, and Michelle said, yeah, talk about those things. Nice. Yeah, so... Very nice. Oh, and Joan said I had to take a call, but I will rewatch. And Jack said that's a really good idea. So you're you're moving you're moving some some careers here. I hope. That's Drew. right. At least moving some fingers for people to to type in. <laughs> to type. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Evelyn said howdy. Yeah. So this is yeah this has been super helpful, especially for someone at the juncture of my career of like figuring mm-hmm. out kind of what the next steps are. You've really helped, and it seems. I mean, at at the end of the day, it's yeah. Whatever you do, there's no there's no shortcut to it, kiddos. At the end of the day, right. So just make sure it's something you're passionate about because it's going to be more work than you expect. Um, like this podcast over 400 episodes <laughs> yeah. ago, and I was like, I'll just interview some comedians, and now I'm like, what have I done? What have I done? Now every I got to set up a thing, and I and I got to send out every single week, and we got to <laughs> post it, and we're going to do it live sometimes. And I got to nope. get background, and what microphone do I use? And yeah. Uh, no, like you say, I think it's a really important kind of point that you made is like, yeah, be, be passionate about it because it's going to be a lot of work and it's, you know, people sometimes see corporate. It's interesting. Comedians have different perspectives on corporate. Some people think of it as selling out. Um, for me, I don't know. I think it's so much that the engineer that as I did more and more comedy, and I think you're seeing this shift in comedy anyway. Like more and more with with Netflix specials and things like that. I think Tig Notaro did a great job of that with Liv. I think Hannah Gatsby did a great job with that with Nanette. Like you're seeing more and more messaging in stand-up comedy specials where it's not just I'm gonna make you laugh for 60 minutes and afterwards you're like, that was funny, but I don't know of anything that I really took away from that. It's like, no, you watch Nanette and you're like, oh wow. I feel a little bit different about self-deprecating humor now, especially if you're in a marginalized group or whatever. Like mm-hmm. there's certain messages. Um Hassan Minaj, his uh, his stand-up special, Homecoming King, is fantastically well. That's basically a keynote in some ways. Mm. Um, like that could, that could be on a corporate stage, essentially, um, with a, a couple of slight tweaks. So you're starting to see it more and more. But for me, it was realizing like, okay, if I've started to develop this skill of getting people to listen by being funny, I started to wonder, what am I doing with their attention? And as an engineer, I was like, if, if I can leave people in a slightly better place, if I can give them a little bit, if I can give them some type of tip where maybe they hate their job, but I can give them some tips so they hate it less, or if I can give them some inspiration to, to do some things and make things a little bit more fun or find a little bit more joy in their life, or even just find ways to manage stress so that they can laugh and relax that stress and show up more present for their family once they get home from work. Like to me, that's something really cool to do with the attention that I've been, you know, um, been given. And, and that's just a different framing. Some people are like, no, but still selling out. You can't, you can't curse in a corporate audience. And so I don't want to do it at selling out. Like the only real true success as a comedian is to, to sell out the big comedy, you know, club stages mm-hmm. or to, to sell out the arenas, et cetera. Hey, great. That's just a, it's a different approach than, than I've had. And so to your point, you got to feel good about it and you got to find passion in it because, building out a speaking side of things. It can help you. The good news is that it can help you still on the stand-up side. You, you can do some speaking for a little while and then blow up completely on the comedian side. So um, uh, Sarah Cooper and I was, were speaking a lot on the same uh, stages. She, had a, she has a great wow. presentation on um, how to create compelling, engaging content that she would do. And um, she was crushing it. And then she blew up on TikTok and that built out into her, you know, because she's very funny and she's been doing it for years. She's one of those examples that's an overnight success who's been really funny, really talented, really hardworking for the past 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but she was doing speaking as one of those things that built out her, her business side of things once after she left Google. And so it, it can be a thing, even if the long-term goal is solely as a comedian, it can be a side venture that helps you to, to, to make some money, but recognize it's not going to be a short one. It's not like you're, you're not going to immediately like, all right, I've decided to do some keynote speaking. I've got, you know, eight book keynotes this, this year, and just, I'm going to make more money than I made all of last year. It's like, no, it's just going to take some time to build up to that. Man, this was so timely. I appreciate you doing this, Drew. Where where can people, if they hear this and feel inspired to reach out to you or look at what else you have going on, where can people do that? Certainly. Well, it, our um, uh, website is humorthatworks.com. So if you're interested just kind of in seeing how we frame humor in the workplace and the value that it has, uh, then you go to humorthatworks.com and uh, you can take a look at that. Uh, on social media, I'm at Drew Tarvin. So D-R-E-W-T-A-R-V as in Victor I-N. So uh, I mostly use uh, social media for puns. That's my outlet. That's my like one thing. So uh, one thing that you can also do, I, I love uh, going into the, the Facebook group and you have the writing prompts. A bunch of people in my Facebook and Twitter feed use my puns as prompts to write their own puns and returns. And I love that. So certainly use that as a, another practice, practice ground, if you will. But uh, certainly feel free to, to connect with me on any of those on the, the social media platforms. And if you have any questions, send me a, a message or anything like that. LinkedIn is probably the best one for messaging and things like that. It's one that I check the most because I'm in the corporate space, right? Versus right. Uh, some of the other ones. But uh, uh, yeah, more than happy to help with, with people to, to, to give recommendations or thoughts because you know the, the benefit of being a comedian and kind of in this space is that you do know how to capture attention. You do not know how to make people laugh. And it's such a great gift to be able to give people is that, that laughter, that joy, uh, even if for a brief moment. If you add a little bit of messaging to it and can inspire people, I think all the better. There it is, hot brethren and sistren. If you enjoyed this episode, go subscribe to our YouTube channel. Channel where we're doing two live streams a week and so much more all to help you level up your comedy game we also have workshops and classes available if you're looking to level up in that way but go reach out to andrew and also let him know you enjoyed his episode of the podcast and until next monday right here on hot This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.